beginning in verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Hoses, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there was also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Hoses, saw where he was laid. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Let us go before the Lord and ask him that he would illuminate this text to us, to our benefit and his glory. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word. Heavenly Father, we delight to know that you made this word flesh and that that flesh dwelt among us and we have beheld that glory. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have inspired men to write these words down and have cared for this text for thousands of years that we might read it and know that it is true and that it is, it is flawless and that it leads us to salvation. Lord, would you illuminate our hearts this night that we might hear it, that we might understand it, and that we might believe. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we consider this passage this evening, I do want us to think about this. Um, so often we think about Jesus' death, and of course there are many films over the years that have been made to portray this event. And the thing I always will say to people when they talk about those films and say what they watched and what they perceived is, is that you perceive something rather minor in the reality of the cross. To watch one of those films is really to just see a man beaten up, bloodied. But if you listen to the song that we sang, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, if you thought about Isaiah 53, which we read earlier, the greatest things that were going on on the cross were things you cannot see. No film, no artist can capture. You can't see the Heavenly Father lay the sins of all His people upon Christ. You can't see that. You can't see the agony in Christ's heart as God does it. What do you see? A man scream out a psalm? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you have no idea the depth of agony and pain. What was a scourging? What were a few nails in comparison to the Creator and sustainer of the universe pouring out His wrath on a human being 
who had never known sin in his life, ever, had never been separated from the love of his father. Now, if you begin to understand that and can see that with your mind's eye and begin to appreciate it in some ways, you will understand why I find most of those films, quite frankly, useless in really reflecting and coming to terms with what Christ has done for His people. The real reality is, and what we're supposed to see in all these things that Christ did, is that many of them were to fulfill the Scriptures. When we read in John, I thirst. Why did He do that? To fulfill the Scriptures. Do you see how the the Gospel writers want you to really understand that behind all this, Jesus is in charge of His death. He's already said in the Gospel of John, No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And in every one of the Gospel accounts, you will note that there are key things that let us know that when Jesus decides to die, it is not because of a scourging, it is not because of nails, it's not because of great blood loss, it is because He determined that now was the time to die. When Jesus died, it was in the hands of Jesus to give up his life, and he gave it up willingly. But he was in charge. And we need to reflect on that, and we need to understand that as we look at this passage this evening, as we consider the fact that Jesus was in fact dead and buried, I want us to think about these realities. I want us to think about the fact that, as I said before, that historically there was a man. His name was Jesus. He was born to a virgin named Mary. He was fathered by a man named Joseph. He grew up in a carpenter's home, which meant he was no wimpy man. Another reason why I don't like most films that portray Jesus, because Jesus usually looks like a sissy. And Jesus was anything but a sissy. I don't know how many carpenters you've ever known, but I used to work in a cabinet maker's shop. And I can assure you that Pi Pi had nothing on these men's forearms. Carpenters are big men now because they have to lift and manage wood. Just imagine what it was like without all the machinery we now have to do a lot of that work for us. A carpenter was a big, strong, burly man. And we need to have that view that Jesus was a man and He walked this earth and He demonstrated something that no other man had ever demonstrated. And that was authority. That was sinlessness. That was the treating of men as men and women as women the way God intended for it to be done. And what we're going to look at this evening is the reality of in His death and burial we see the reflection of what happens when the Christ has touched other human beings' lives, even in His death and burial. And so that's what I want to look at this evening, is that redemptive reality that's going on as Christ dies. I want us to understand that that this reality that Christ fulfills here, that this fulfillment of His death and His burial 
are actually looking back to a covenant that was made with Abraham back in Genesis. The reality is that Christ, sorry about that, folks. The reality is that Christ did not just show up on planet Earth on a whim. But the reality is, is that God had intended this ever since the fall of humanity back in Genesis. The reality is, is that Christ comes. And what Mark is telling us here is, is that as this day arrives, as this evening, this day of preparation, remember that the, the whole idea that's being discussed here, this idea of Sabbath, rest, this idea of Passover, eaten, all points back to something previous to Jesus being on this planet. The Sabbath was established at creation itself. And notice that here it is. We now come to a time where the Sabbath that God had created in the past now has a part to play in the death and burial of His Son and also in the redemption of His people. This meal established thousands of years before with Moses and the children of Israel being redeemed out of the bondage to Egypt, now comes and plays a crucial role in the reality of who Christ is. And it is the scene of which we will be partaking of in just a few minutes. So I want us to realize that this event here is not just this thing we're remembering about 2,000 years ago. What we're really remembering is thousands and thousands and thousands of years before it, that now culminate in this event. The reality is, is that God had made a promise in Genesis 15 to Abraham and made a covenant with him and said, if you don't keep your end, I pay. And if I don't keep my end, I pay. Did God keep his end? Yes. Did Abraham keep his? No. Couldn't. His offspring couldn't. Israel ultimately defected from the faith. These people that God had put his name on could not keep the covenant. And therefore we realize that the reality of Christ coming to die was necessary if human beings were to be saved because human beings cannot do anything to save themselves. They are a hopeless mess. And any of us who are honest with ourselves know this is true. I have a friend right now who is very much what we would consider to be somewhat at life's wit's end. He has come to the end of his rope. And all he really has is God. I had a child of mine today who said, I think that no one really likes me. I think that I was born to just make everybody miserable. All I seem to do is fail. Anybody ever felt that way? Is that child of mine alone? At least not alone from my end. I've felt that way before. See, the reality is, is that Christ did not come for no reason. He came for a very important reason. That was to fulfill what God had promised 
and to redeem us out of the pit of despair that we often walk in. Jesus on that cross was circumcised and baptized. He was circumcised because his body was cut wide open. And he was baptized because his blood poured out all over that body. This is what Paul wrote in Galatians. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one... Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You hear what Paul's reflecting on? He's looking back to Genesis and saying, God, in the crucifixion and death and burial of Jesus, has kept His promise. Men can't keep their word, but God has kept His. So we look at the fact that Jesus really had to die. Jesus really did come to redeem us. Jesus really did set us free from the bondage of sin because of his death. And this is what Paul writes in reflecting upon that in 2 Corinthians 5. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I want us to notice that in this passage of Mark, we see clearly that Jesus died. There are those who suggest that Jesus did not really die. He merely swooned. He passed out. In fact, one of the reasons why they say that is because most people who were crucified hung on a cross for at least a full day, if not two full days or more. And so the fact that Jesus cries out, it is finished, and lowers his head and hangs there, they suggest he didn't really die. He just kind of faked it. Now, I'll suggest to you that's quite the actor to fake having been had most of your body ripped to shreds and hanging from a cross, which is one of the most gruesome forms of death ever created by human beings. A testimony itself of the wickedness and cruelty of humanity, not our goodness and graciousness. So the reality is they suggest that he didn't. But I want us to look at verses 37 through 39 very briefly as we, as this right before this passage we're considering. It says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now what I want you to notice here is this first thing. 
Men who were dying on a cross, understand this, their lungs were weakened. Jesus has lost tremendous amounts of blood. And the only thing that really is helpful to us in understanding physically what's happened to him is really this. It's almost physically impossible for him to have reared up and gotten enough oxygen in his body to have yelled anything. But the fact is, is that John has told us that he yelled out, It is finished! Tetelestai! And that's one of the reasons why the centurion later will tell Paul, I guarantee you he's dead. Because that's just weird that anybody on the cross could actually yell out anything. It's almost physically impossible. And for him to have hung there as long as he had and have bled as much as he had bled, it was shocking. That's why this man makes that acclamation. Truly, this was the Son of God. Because it shocks him as to how this event takes place. So we know that there's something strange going here and the reality of his death is verified by the centurion. Jesus did not suffer the cruelty of the cross for a long extended period of time. Rather, as I've already said, once sin had been dealt with, he gave up his spirit into his father's hands. Now, the other thing I want us to say here is, and we'll look at this too, when this centurion comes and Pilate asks him, in fact, is this man dead? Because Pilate was shocked. The text tells us Pilate was surprised because most men take a long time to crucify takes several days. So Pilate is shocked, and he asks the centurion, now here's what I want you to understand, men and women, is that if this centurion had lied, if he had not in fact known for a fact that Jesus was dead and it had been proven otherwise, this man's job was forfeited along with his life. Now, you know, we think about centurions, and we probably watch way too many Roman movies, and we, we, we see all these people in regalia, and we really don't have an appreciation. To be a centurion was actually quite a high rank. You were not some chump. You were quite a high official. In fact, many of them earned enough money to, if they weren't born Roman citizens, they could buy their citizenship. We know that from Paul's interaction with centurions in Acts, that Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen, and the man says, I bought the centurion says, I have bought my citizenship with great wealth. So centurions were important people. So losing that title and that job would have been serious business. You wouldn't play around with saying, the man's dead, I think. This is not something you mess around with. The centurion would have known the man is dead. So we know that Jesus, in fact, died. The second thing I want us to look at very briefly here is the burial and the rich man. As we look at Jesus' burial, we need to consider some details around the burial. First of all, Jesus remained in the grave for three days. Now, this might not seem overly important to you, but the reality is is that for someone to lie in the grave for three days generally meant that if they were going to resuscitate and get whatever needs they needed, water, food, etc., after being on the cross, even if Jesus had swooned, there was nothing available to him. Secondly, we know that Joseph bought this garment, which means they would have washed Jesus, which if something was going to resuscitate him, surely having cold water drenched all over you to wash off all the blood and the gore and then wrapping you tightly and binding you up in this garment 
would have been significant. Not only that, but having been bound in that garment, how would a man who had been bleeding like Jesus had bled for hours have unwrapped himself? We're talking about a human being, not Superman. Jesus was a human being. He really died. He really suffered. He really had lost tremendous amounts of blood. So we know that in these events we see here, I want you to see the factual evidence that's available to us as we look at these passages. These gospel writers are telling us real true facts that we can verify from ancient history, that this is how they buried people, and this was the condition people would have been found. Mark also uses a term here, and it puts it in Pilate's mouth anyway. Pilate does not use a term of body. He doesn't use the Greek word soma. He uses a different Greek word, which actually means corpse, which is why if you're reading from an ESV, it actually says corpse, because that's what the word actually is. So Pilate and the centurion and everyone else around Jesus' death were not thinking that a body that had swooned was being placed in a grave. It was a corpse. It was a dead man being laid there, being dealt with. Well, the thing I want us to look at then about this that I think is, is pretty powerful is this Joseph of Arimathea. Let's get personal for just a minute. Think about this. Jesus was now at the end, apparently, of whatever hope there had been that Jesus might be the Messiah. Whatever they had thought about it, it pretty much had come to a close. The man's dead. And all of a sudden, a man who himself is high-ranking. We're not just talking about a member of the Sanhedrin. We're not just talking about a Pharisee. Not even a Pharisee of Pharisees. We're talking about someone who actually was a high-ranking set on the inner circle of the Sanhedrin, if you will. If the Sanhedrin was a circle, Joseph Arimathea was on the inner circle. He was a man of great wealth. We know this because he has a tomb that's been carved out. Most people didn't have that. Even people who had decent wages couldn't afford such things. Joseph was a very powerful, influential, wealthy man. And what this text tells us is this. At the time when it did him the least good, he did the most good for Jesus. At the time when Jesus' predicament seemed its most hopeless, Joseph is a standing affirmation of hope. And I want us to reflect on that. That Joseph of Arimathea comes and cares for our Savior at His end. Joseph had nothing to gain and everything to lose. All the twelve have abandoned Jesus. And here's this man, Joseph, who the text tells us brings all his earthly means because he walks in to Pilate. You know, someone who was crucified back in this day for a capital crime and realized Jesus was killed for declaring that he was a king. Romans and Israelites who claimed to be king were not good friends. Romans had wiped this place out multiple times for insurrections, for people claiming to be the Messiah or the next king. 
The idea that Pilate would even be remotely willing to let Jesus be buried, you might think, well, he just had a guilty conscience. You need to read historically about Pilate. He was a cruel person, and he didn't grant favors easily. So what I want us to realize is that Joseph of Arimathea, because of who he was and his stature, walks in, and the text tells us he had to have courage. This was no small thing. He walks in and has to gird himself up with courage to go before Pilate and say, would you give us Jesus? And Pilate grants the request. Now, we can immediately default and say, well, of course he did because God was behind all of it. But I want us to understand that God normally works through natural, ordinary means. And the normal, natural, ordinary means that God worked through was a man of substance and of means being right there ready to care for Christ. Why? Because he was a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. And just because the kingdom of God appeared to have been shattered on the cross and defeated, Joseph seems not to be defeated. I don't know what Joseph's thinking in his mind, and I'm not going to tell you what he's thinking. But the reality is is that at this moment, when the kingdom of God seems to have failed, if it had anything to do with Jesus, Joseph steps up to the plate. And lays it all on the line. The last thing that I want us to look at here briefly is these women. These watching and witnessing women. Notice that we're told that these women stood back and watched Jesus die. They watched him, his death be verified. They see it. For what it is, they watch them do the things. They pierce his side. These women observe all that. They watch all of it. Then they watch as Joseph and his servants and other people come and take the body of Jesus down. And they take him to the tomb. And they wash him and they wrap him in this linen and prepare him. The women watch to see that all take place. So what we see in all the Gospels, because all the Gospels record that these women observed and watched all this, tells us several things. One. These women were not confused where the body was laid. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. In first century Judaism, it was the woman's place to make sure that the body was wrapped in appropriate ointment. And given the fact that these women had basically financially supported Jesus, had followed him all the way from Galilee down to Jerusalem to watch his death, tells us that they weren't weak people. They were people of some strength and some means. And so they would have observed And they were going to take care of Jesus. That's why they went to the tomb three days later to finish the burial that was hastily done at this particular juncture. So we see that the fact is that these women are witnesses. The other thing that I want us to notice is the fact that Mark tells us is astonishing. It must be true because it would have served in its own day absolutely no purpose. Women's testimony, you might as well have had your dog come in and bark. Their testimony was irrelevant. No woman could testify in any court at this time. It was irrelevant what she had to say. The cow's mooing, the dog's barking, the woman's talking. I really want you to get the picture. That's what we're seeing here. So for Mark to have wasted his time writing down, these women stood back and watched it. They followed to the tomb and watched it. What is he telling you? 
It's true. These women saw it. They watched it. Last thing I want you to see before I'm through with this little section here is, is that what's going on here in some small way is the reality of redemption with these women as well. Why? Because women, and part of the reason why they have been viewed negatively, if we will remember in our Bibles back to Genesis, is what? Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What do we see happening here? What we see is this. The reality of Jesus touching these women made them followers. The reality of Jesus being involved with these women's life and speaking to them words of truth and treating them with dignity made them loyal to Jesus. They followed Him. They cared for Him. They witness to the reality of who He is. And what we see in, in a very strong way is Mark basically saying to us, the reality of the curse where a, it was a woman who ate of the fruit and gave it to Adam. The first Adam. Her daughters are here bearing testimony to the reality that the second Adam has accomplished what God sent him into the world to do. There is a redemptive reality to women's restoration in some way that we see that these witnessing women are not irrelevant in God's kingdom. Their testimony is valued. Their witness is purposeful. We will see, and hopefully you will be back with us on Sunday, that these same women will be the first to see Having heard this message, here are three things I'd like for us to reflect on. First, embrace the gift of life by putting your full trust and confidence in Jesus who became sin so that we might be freed from sin. Maybe some of you came tonight and, and that's a question in your mind. Maybe that's something you've never really done. You've never really put your trust in Christ. I would encourage you this night to realize this is the true Christ who has died for people and that you would place your faith in Him. Second, that you, like Joseph, would be willing to risk humiliation and social rejection by standing for Jesus in foolishness and disgrace of the cross of believing. Yes, being fools to say, I actually believe that Jesus really died and really was buried. And I don't buy any of the hogwash that he passed out or that people went to wrong tombs. I don't buy that. And you can think I'm a moron. It's always funny for me to, to walk into coffee shops or things like that and people will start talking to me and they'll be reading some book and I'll ask them about it and they'll for a moment think, wow, this guy actually seems pretty intelligent. And then they'll ask the fatal question, so what do you do for a living? Why are you in this coffee shop with all those books? I'm a pastor. Ah. And all of a sudden, all the supposed brains they had thought I had seemed to have just dropped straight out of my head. I all of a sudden have become a moron. Or I get the kind of things where they basically say something to this effect. Wow, you're, you're pretty intelligent for a pastor. <laughs> so what I'm saying to you is be willing. See in this passage the willingness to be thought of as a fool. For Christ's sake. Thirdly and finally, be willing to be a witness to the truth of the gospel of Jesus. 
even if you were socially or culturally not considered credible, even if people in your own family think, ah, oh, you're that one. You're that, you're that weird person in our family who believes all that Jesus nonsense. These women are a shining testimony to being nothing socially or culturally. And yet delighting to say that bloody mass is our Jesus. Will we be willing to do the same thing? May God make it so in our midst. Amen.